after the sermon as a call to response. And all believers following the Lord and their faith, members of any church, are welcome to partake with us in this Lord's Supper. However, if you are uh, still considering the Lord, if you haven't believed on the Lord for salvation, if you're a little one, haven't followed the Lord in baptism, we would urge you to pass on this. The leaders of the church won't fence the Lord's table so specifically as to tell you no, unless you would be under church discipline. That would be the only way that would happen. So there is a bit of self-governing that goes on here. So we want to say from the start that the Lord's Supper is meant to be taken by believers together in this covenant community, and it is a glorious thing to take together for believers, and it is a witness to unbelievers of the faith that they need to be included in, and we would love to talk to you about that after church, if that's something that you would like to to discuss further. Before we read our focus text this morning, our exposition for for 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, I want to overview it briefly. There is a disease. It is not diagnosed, but it leads to major life changes. It's not deadly, but it can be perilous. It's not re- it, it does not require a trip to the optometrist, but it does cause lapses in sight. Hand sanitizer will not protect you from the disease that I'm talking about, the sickness that passes around. The name of the disease that you might ask is discouragement. Discouragement. A disease is something that leeches off your body but contributes nothing to its valid goals. Discouragement leeches off your energy but contributes nothing to where you're going. Discouragement, like disease, cannot be ignored for long. Discouragement will eventually render you ineffective, lifeless, hopeless. Discouragement must be acknowledged, not ignored. It must be acknowledged, but it cannot be allowed to reign as king of your life. You need to wage war against discouragement And in your life, as you wage war against discouragement, you will see how it is that God moves you from discouragement to effectiveness in ministry. If you will listen to his word today, I believe a benefit will be encouragement in the midst of discouragement. And maybe you say this morning, well, I'm in a pretty good mood. I'm not all that discouraged. Well, stay tuned. You'll get discouraged at some point, and I believe this text will help you. If you are discouraged, I don't need to tell you how that's applicable to you. Uh, and if you're somewhere in between, uh, sock this one away for a rainy day because discouragement is a cruel tax on the effectiveness of humanity, on the effectiveness of God's people. So the way that I want to approach this text today, is, as we're just about to read it, is I, I want you to see how discouragement pulls an otherwise faithful person from faithful ministry. I want you to see how discouragement can do that. I want you to see how the enemy uses discouragement to cause you to believe that God's keeping something from you. And I want you to see how discouragement can be overcome by returning to the very place that we started, the miracle of our salvation created within us. And so there's quite a bit to do. So listen to the text, and we'll get started this morning, will you please? Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Some translations will say secret and shameful ways. It's a fair translation. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Refuse to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth... We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our goal is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word to minister grace and to its hearers. This is God's word, and we're blessed to have it before us in print, to be able to read it and to hear from God as he speaks to us by his word. This is his written communication for us, 
In the time of the writing of this text, to the, it's called the second letter to the Corinthians. It's really the fourth letter. Two letters we don't have anymore. God doesn't intend for us to have it or we would have them. But the letters were written to the church at Corinth because this fledgling, challenged young church that had been planted by the Apostle Paul and his cohorts on his missionary journeys was struggling. They were struggling with living the faith. They were struggling with false teachers coming through and teaching things that were contrary to sound doctrine. And there was even attack on the person of Paul, and Paul feels the need to defend why sometimes there wasn't seeming to be as much results as what some people were expecting to happen right away. He wanted to speak in such a way as to defend the value of his ministry in spite of greater or lesser results. Now, the Apostle Paul certainly had results in ministry. They're called churches all across Asia Minor. There are churches all over that region that were started by the Apostle Paul during his first, second, or third missionary journey. Missionary journeys. However, there are times even within that of great discouragement, of persecution. And there was room for opportunistic leaders that were either false teachers altogether or perhaps immature in their leadership to make accusations toward the apostle that he felt the need to refute, not so much because of his, his own ego, but because the attacks on his faithfulness were actually attacks on any minister's faithfulness throughout the ages. It was important, therefore, to make statements against attacks that would be attacks on faithful ministry going forward. And so when we look at this text, the way that we want to break it down for our benefit, for the glory of God, is the first two verses, the way the enemy uses, the means the enemy uses to pull an otherwise faithful person from faithfulness to the gospel. And then verses 3 and 4, we're going to see how he makes you feel like he's keeping, God's keeping something from you. And then thirdly, how we overcome the enemy and discouragement by reminding ourselves again and again of the miracle of creation, salvation that's happened because God moves through the proclaimed word. As we proclaim him, faith comes by hearing. So the first thing we want to see is in these first two verses. Let's look at them afresh. It's the means that the enemy uses to pull an otherwise faithful minister away from faithful ministry, faithful service. It says, verses 1 and 2 is what we're looking at right now. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, let's just pick up and pause right there. We don't lose heart. We don't decide to behave badly. A range of meaning would be we don't become cowards. So having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. We don't become cowardly. We don't behave badly. What, what this intimates is, is that we could lose heart that we could behave cowardly, that we could adopt sketchy methods of being Christians and living Christians and sharing Christ rather than pure methods of being Christians and living for Jesus and sharing Christ. It's an acknowledgement of a temptation that discouragement is real and we could lose heart. We could behave badly. We could act cowardly. And yet, at the same time, even get tangible results, even if they're not long-term results, maybe temporary results. This passage indicates that we can lose heart and that right out of the gate, we need to be reminded of what that therefore is therefore. It is about the glory of God and the transformation of ourselves as believers as we behold Christ. That's what the last sermon was about from chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. So therefore, since we have this Christ to behold, and his work spiritually inside of us to make us transformed ever into his image. Therefore, we do not lose heart because this ministry that we have of sharing Christ and his transformative work with others is by God's mercy. Differently, you wouldn't have the opportunity. You would miss out on this ministry if God hadn't intercepted your soul. If God had not shown you mercy, if he had given you what you deserve, you wouldn't have this ministry. And so right out of the gate, the text is leading us to, to believe that discouragement and diversion from ministry is a very, very real tripwire for otherwise faithful Christians. And because of that, we don't lose heart. Now, 
the implied question is, what's going on in the background that might cause you to lose heart? Well, the problems going on at the church at Corinth at the time are not dissimilar to the problems of any church in any town in America today. It would be that you had some people saying we should go this direction, and other people saying we could go this, should go this direction. It was disagreements on philosophy of ministry. It was attacks on a perceived lack of results. They had, didn't, didn't meet a certain quota of baptisms that year. Or I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, some follow Cephas. You remember these verses from Corinthians otherwise. It's, just, it's not dissimilar to, to what any church would face in any town is the openness to attacks on direction, philosophy of ministry, based on a perceived lack of results. Now, what I can't say is that there's never a time to examine philosophy of ministry, because that's, that's not true. I can't say that as Christians, that from time to time we shouldn't say, you know, I wonder if, if there's any methods that we might be able to alter slightly without compromising the message of Christ in order to be as relevant as we can be to the world around us and sharing the gospel with them. I think that there's something to that. But I also think that that has become the tail that wags the dog of church philosophies of ministry in the last hundred years or so. And, and I don't think it should be. I don't think the relevance mantra should be. And I think that's exactly the kind of problem that the apostle is facing and exactly the impetus for writing verses like this for us today. It says in verse 1, Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That word underhanded comes from the Greek noun kruptos, meaning to keep secret, to keep something hidden or concealed. Phonetically, the word sounds kind of like cryptic, doesn't it? Kruptos, cryptic. Our ministry is one that speaks carefully, but not hiddenly. Our ministry as Christians is to be one that speaks carefully, but not cryptically. Cryptic communication is a blight on false apostles, on unfaithful elders. We speak clearly, openly. We should seek to, to offer up to people the open statement of the truth. We proclaim God's word openly and clearly. And this is one way that we overcome the discouragement disease is we don't tamper with God's word in times where we feel like we're not getting enough response to God's word. But that's the perennial temptation. Maybe we need a new perspective on Paul, as one author said. Maybe we need a new perspective on ministry. Perhaps we should think differently of models of how we do church or, or how we share the message. And what happens across time is, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned during Nazi Germany, is eventually the church's message becomes one of cheap grace that offers people all of the false love of God with none of the repentance of man, with none of the calls to holiness and the pursuit of purity that God calls his people to just by virtue of his relationship and closeness with us. Grace is not cheap because grace costs God his son. Grace is not cheap because grace is found in the, in the cross section of Christ hanging on the cross when heaven came down and glory was offered to fill our soul. Grace cannot be cheap. It is not cheap. But we at times are tempted to preach a message of cheap grace because we're just not seeing the level of success that we want to see. And it is discouraging. It is discouraging when when brothers preach their heart out. It is discouraging when you go to your workplace and you share the gospel or you invite someone to church and, and it's, just, it's just a bridge too far. It is discouraging when somebody seems to be coming along the way and then they, they defect. They just, well, no, that's not for me. Or when you can't really tell where a person is because the, the energy for the, the task of the gospel and the life in the gospel just seems to be sort of ebbing and flowing and, and a person just is kind of noncommittal and nebulous. And it can be discouraging. That's true. 
The apostle is essentially acknowledging that discouragement and yet at the same time saying, don't resort to cryptic communication. Don't tweak the message or don't, don't water the message down to the point that it's hardly recognizable. Keep with the gospel that is biblical and proclaim it to unbelievers for conversion and proclaim it to believers for their discipleship, for their development. Don't back away from the plain teaching of God's Word in order to offer a closed statement of half-truth. Don't be cryptic. Don't be underhanded. Don't be shameful. This verse talks clearly and exhorts clearly that the leaders of the early church could commend themselves to every believer's conscience in the church at Corinth in the sight of God, they could commend themselves to them because they refused to waffle their philosophies of ministry to make the truth a little bit harder to find. In no way am I saying that we should be nasty and ugly and unusually obtuse to unbelievers. I'm not saying that. I'm not advocating that. We should have a soft touch with those that are far from God. But we don't love them well by not telling them the truth. It is not loving to perpetuate a narrative of everything's all right with people that are, have a path currently of a one-way trip to a devil's hell. It is not helpful to tacitly agree with the enemy of this age by not telling a person that has no apparent profession of faith and witness of the gospel that everything will be okay because God, after all, just simply will take care of it. Well, he has taken care of it. He took care of it in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And the Bible says that no one will see the Father but by him. That's our message. And we cannot change it. If you're an unbeliever with us this morning, I want you to know that God has made a way for you to spend eternity with him. And it is through his son, Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that if you refuse that way, there is no other way. And you will be totally accountable for all of your sins. And you will, you will suffer, righteously suffer, a sinner's hell. Because you are believing a powerful delusion. And that takes us to our second point. Let's reread verses 3 and 4 to find our second point. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. If our gospel is veiled, apparently there had been a charge by those that were perpetuating discouragement of the better leaders in the church, perpetuating discouragement because of a lack of perceived results, perpetuating a, a, a discouragement here that, that the gospel that you're preaching doesn't seem to be getting through to people. And he says here, if, you're go if our gospel is veiled, the gospel of Christ, it's veiled to those who are perishing. It's not veiled to the true believers. It's veiled to those who are perishing. You might remember from 1 Corinthians that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the very power of God. And so there's, he's picking up on that train of thought, I think, here. If our gospel's veiled, if you're right, if it's veiled to people, it's veiled to the unbelievers. They haven't seen yet. And in this, is, this is what he says in verse 4. He says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. L listen to that one more time, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, blinded the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light, seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Friends, there's a big difference between seeking to care for unbelievers and seeking to please them. There is a distinction between seeking to care for unbelievers and seeking to please them. We are to be the people that care for unbelievers, that, that seek to meet physical needs when we can for people, to take care of them. But the second that we begin to be people pleasers toward unbelievers is the second that we compromise our own encouragement and it's the second that we stop having the edge of boldness to share what they most need to hear. You could share 99 moralisms and miss 
the one message of the gospel that they most need to hear for the conversion of their souls. And that is that there's only one way to spend eternity with the Lord. And that is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If our first point was that the enemy has means to use to pull an otherwise faithful person from faithful gospel presentation, then our second point is, what is it that he's using to keep us discouraged? And in time, it is that he's causing us to think that we're missing out on something. I mean, we wouldn't say it, but it's that there's something incomplete about the message that God has given us. And I want to take a pause from Corinthians, and I want to go back to the very first book of the Bible. And I just want to show you how old this tactic of discouragement toward God's created people is. Listen to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. This is the passage where we have recorded how sin entered the world. God had created man and woman, and he had overseen, presided over the first marriage between Adam and Eve, and he had instituted that covenant for time, and he had given commands to Adam that Adam had passed on to Eve, and they were to follow God by keeping these commands, and there was no frustration of sin that had yet entered the created order, that there was someone in eternity past that had sinned, sinned in the heavenlies, and he sought to inflict that sin on God's created order. And he's sometimes called Belial, he's sometimes called the devil, in this case he's called the serpent, sometimes Corinthians calls him in other wise places, calls him Satan. That this is this is this is the God with the little G that the Corinthians passage is talking about. It's it's hyperbolic. It's picking up on the Old Testament narrative where amongst all the gods that weren't really gods, there was one God, Yahweh. And so the God of this age is no God at all. It's a hyperbolic way of talking about an authority that is parasitic, that is not a true authority, that has rebelled against God and is trying to prevent you from seeing the light, from seeing the truth, and is successful. Now listen to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to how our ancient foe, listen to the tactic so that you don't think it's new, causing you to think that you're missing out on something, that God hasn't given you enough revelation, enough word, enough gospel, as if there's any other. This is what it says in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty. We might say he's more cryptic, more crafty, right? He's, he's keeping things hidden. He's more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Well, God is sovereign, but there is an allowance for this crafty serpent, this crafty serpent Satan, to trick, to deceive, to withhold information, to accuse God of withholding information, right? Satan is otherwise known and referred to in the Bible as the accuser of the brethren. He's accusatory. He accuses us and plays on our conscience, accusing us of various things, not being good enough, which we're not. We need Jesus for that. But now also we see this tactic of him accusing God, but not, not directly, subtly. Listen to how Genesis 3 goes. He said to the woman, the serpent that is, not to the man, but to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, after verse 1, let's just stop for a second. And let's think about Genesis 3. God did say not to eat of a certain tree. And he told Adam that. And Adam's sinning by not stepping up here and saying something. So let's not give Eve a terrible rap here. But, but notice the tactic. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Certainly Eve messes up here because she has received the command from God derivatively through her husband. And she should say, well, God didn't say that you can't eat any tree in the garden. God said you couldn't eat a certain tree, the tree of the knowledge of life. That would have been the answer, right? That would have been the catechism. It's not, not any, nebulously, it's one. But, but what is happening here is this is, the, this is the germ of how Satan treats all of us in full flower. It is, did God really say that? Is that really what he said? And did he say it this way? And is it that prohibitive? We take issue with God's word because of the, the God of this age. 
because of the enemy, just the same as Eve did and Adam did here tacitly. This is what else Genesis 3 says. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So she sort of comes back to the reality, but then she says, I can't even touch it, which didn't appear to be in the first command. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you surely won't die. And that's true enough, isn't it? Like, if you sin, will you immediately die? Answer, no, you won't. But what does sin do eventually? Kills us, doesn't it? Every single human that dies, dies because of sin in our world. Not, not because of some sin that you committed maybe yesterday, but cumulatively, it is the degradation of the human body is a result of sin. Sin is the, is the culprit. Sin is the reason why we don't live on forever. It's why we need a glorified body. That's biblical theology. Now, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you won't surely die. And Genesis 3, 5 says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And then he had her. Had gone from a little confusion, a little cryptic communication, through the valley of discouragement, and to sin. And that, that mode of operation hasn't changed that much. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we're looking at this about discouragement and what can cause folks that have otherwise been faithful to, to take, on, take on bad philosophies of ministry, to take on in discouragement, to, to not have confidence in God's power through the gospel to, to want to change things and have new perspectives that really aren't new at all. Look at again at verse 3. If our gospel is veiled, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The God of this world, which is no God at all, by the way. It's Satan. It's that serpent. In the case of unbelievers, they're blinded. So, so what Paul is saying, in essence, is this. You think falsely that God's keeping something from you, but actually, it's your little G God that's keeping something from you. It's the God of this age that's keeping you from knowing the goods. The goods God has, and he's made a way for you to know it. And it's the enemy that blinds you. It, it, you see how the narrative is it's not flipped, it's just told as it is. It's the same thing that the serpent did to Eve. God's keeping something from you. You haven't really understood the word. You're not getting it right. You don't know the gospel. God's keeping something. Look, there's not enough results. We need more. God doesn't want you to know. He doesn't want you to enjoy. It's an indictment on the character of God. Don't ever trust an indictment on the character of God. He's the one entity in all of the universe whose character cannot withstand or cannot, does not need to be indicted because he can withstand any indictment because God is absolutely perfect, impeccable in his character in ways that we can't even relate with because of our imperfections. He's to be worshipped and adored. He's, he's, he's not to be indicted and accused. Well, that accusation is clearly the result of the devil's work, isn't it? But this is what the devil does. He causes us to think in our isolation, in our distance from the plain words of God from, from his word, in our isolation, in our discouragement, causes us to think we're missing out on something. We must be missing out on something. Isn't this just like a guilty person? What does a guilty person do? A guilty person accuses someone that's not guilty of doing the very thing that they're guilty of doing. You ever heard of the old phrase, bait and switch? Oh, what is the enemy doing but saying, God's keeping something from you? Well, who's keeping something from these people, folks? It's the enemy. If you're an unbeliever and you don't see the beauty of Christ, if you don't see the gospel, it's because Satan is keeping it from you. And I want you to know something. God wants to break through the darkness. He wants you to see beyond the veil into the beauty of Jesus Christ this morning. He wants you to see him. 
to know him as he is known, to worship him, to behold your God to the image that is Christ. Christ is making us into his likeness, and we want you to join in. It's not what we want to keep from you. It's what we want for you. It's just that the enemy has convinced you that that can't be the way, that there must be other ways, and if there aren't other ways, then God is not just. And that is an accusation by a guilty man against an innocent man. But then again, what's new? I mean, an accusation by a guilty man against an innocent man is exactly what happened at Calvary, isn't it? Guilty men accusing, accusing, accusing. Nothing would stick, but the mob saw to it that Jesus got hung on the cross. And in a twist of divine certitude, God of all creation intervened in the midst of all the little accusers, of all the accusations, and let us have exactly what we wanted, the death of the only innocent man that's ever walked the face of the earth. And even stranger still in his mercy and grace, he sees fit to offer you salvation through the very thing that caused his son's death, death on a cross. And for those of us in Christ this morning, we say, wow, I'm the reason that he went there. I didn't have to be alive in the first century to be bound up with the God of this age, bound up with the accuser of the brethren. And we sent him there and he died there for us. And in his death, he showed us how to live this life. And he didn't stay dead. He resurrected after three days. And the miracle of the resurrection assures the miracle of our resurrection. Amen? That is the gospel. And that's the gospel that false teachers are saying, well, you know, that's just a little bit too harsh. Maybe we should make some other ways to God. Uh, just, let's just water down the Bible's teaching on sexual purity. That's a little harsh. Let's don't talk about how God presided in that garden temple sanctuary over that first wedding, and it was a male and a female. Let's don't talk about that. That's a little harsh. Let's don't actually discuss what it means to be fallen from grace. That's a little harsh. Let's just tell everybody they'll be okay, and they just need to sort of get a little bit better in how they live their life. And you know, Let's just do a little bit of self-helps, a little bit of Dr. Phil meets Oprah, Let's just kind of meld a few things together and let's just kind of give them a little bit of a message and, and, and they'll come to our church and maybe even they'll, they'll, they'll be givers and, and maybe even we'll build our own little fiefdom and we'll sort of tack Jesus' name on it. But we're not going to go the way of the cross. We're not going to talk about the gospel, the bloodiness of the cross. We're not going to talk about animal sacrifice and Jesus being the final sacrifice. We're not going to get into all that stuff. And I believe what this passage is screaming at us is, stay with that stuff. Stay with that stuff. Stay with that stuff. And the little accusers are going to say, but that stuff's not working. It's not working. And the spirit that is informing your conscience by God's word is continuing to say with, stay to you and stay to me, stay with that stuff. Stay with that stuff. Stay with that stuff. And the enemy is going to bring voices of accusation that say, but there's not enough conversions. There's not enough people getting dunked. There's not, there's not enough, there's not enough, and we want to make quotas, and, 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 and we want to, we want to you know, build some kind of business model that works, and stay with that stuff. Stay with that stuff. Stay with that stuff. Don't believe the accuser. Again and again, I'm, I'm impressed with a, with a book written by Mark Dever called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and he, uh, he writes about results-based ministries in his section, his introduction called Popular Models of the Church. I just want to read just a little bit of it to you. He says, three models of the church are found today. He said there may be others, but three. It's summarized as liberal, seeker-sensitive, and traditional. He said, drawing with bold lines for just a minute, we might conceive of the liberal model in attempts to be successful in evangelism, they try to rethink the gospel in contemporary terms. So it becomes what Friedrich Schleiermacher called in the 19th century the social gospel. Number one, liberal. Number two, seeker-sensitive. We might find something of the same goal applied differently in the seeker-sensitive model seen in the writing and the ministry of folks such as like at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago and churches associated with that way of thinking, that philosophy of ministry. They've tried to rethink the church like the liberals, but with the goal of evangelism always in mind, from the outside in, 
from the outside in in an attempt to make the gospel's relevance obvious to everyone. And he says this can even be a problem in so-called traditional evangelical churches. The motive would be to be successful in evangelism, to see results with the local church treated as sort of a stationary evangelistic rally. The traditional church might have more in common with the seeker-sensitive model, just usually with an older culture, the culture of, say, 50 or 100 years ago. While there might be doctrinal distinctions, he writes, between these kinds of churches, all three have important commonalities. Each assume that evident relevance and response is the key indicator of ministry success. And I'm arguing this morning that Corinthians is saying that that's not the key indicator of ministry success. That that's part of the accusation against faithful ministry, is that if the results don't follow quickly enough, we have to change our philosophy of ministry. This is what else he writes. I'm reading from page 31 of the Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, if you want to pick it up and read it on your own. It says, The social ministries of the liberal church, the music of the seeker-sensitive church, and the programs of the traditional evangelical church all must work well and work now to be considered relevant and successful. Depending on the type of church, success may mean so many people fed or so many people involved or so many people saved. But the assumption of three, these three kinds of churches share is that the fruit of a successful church is readily apparent. From both a biblical and historical standpoint, this assumption seems incalculably dangerous. Biblically, we find that God's word is replete with images of delayed blessing. God, for his own inscrutable purposes, tests and tries his Job's and his Joseph's, his Jeremiah's, and even Jesus himself. The trials of Job, the beating and selling of Joseph, the imprisonment and mocking of Jeremiah, the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus, all remind us that God moves in mysterious ways. He calls us more fundamentally to a relationship of trust with him than to a full understanding of him and his ways. The parables of Jesus are full of stories of the kingdom of God being beginning in surprisingly small, seemingly insignificant ways, but growing finally to a glorious prominence. Biblically, we must realize that the size of what our eyes see is rarely a good way to estimate the greatness of something in the eyes of God. Amen? Now, historically, from a historical standpoint, we could do well to remember that looks can be deceiving. When a culture is saturated with Christianity and biblical knowledge, when God's common grace and even His special grace are spread widely, one might perceive obvious blessings. Biblical morality may be affirmed by many. The church may be widely esteemed. The Bible may be taught even in secular schools. In such a time, it may be hard to distinguish between the apparent and the real. But in a time when Christianity is being widely and rapidly disowned, where evangelism is considered intolerant or even classified as a hate crime, we find the stakes are changed. On the one hand, the culture to which we would conform in order to be relevant becomes so inextricably entwined with antagonism to the gospel that to conform to it must thus result in a loss of the gospel itself. On the other hand, it is more difficult for nominal Christianity to thrive. In such a day, we must rehear the Bible and reimagine the concept of successful ministry, not as necessarily immediately fruitful, but as demonstrably faithful to God's Word. Listen to that last sentence one more time. In such a day, we must rehear the Bible, rehear it, and reimagine the concept of successful ministry, not as necessarily immediately fruitful, but as demonstrably faithful to God's word. Regardless of the ready appearance of fruit, I want us to be a congregation of members that are demonstrably faithful to God's word. That's what I, I'm praying for, for me and for you. And I need to pray for it, and you need to join me in praying for demonstrable faithfulness to God's word because the enemy is accusing that model of ministry at every single turn and is discouraging otherwise faithful people from being demonstrably faithful to God's Word. Be demonstrably faithful to God's Word. What we've seen in our text and in our sermon so far is the discouragement that comes that causes us to deviate from plain spoken truth of the gospel. We've also seen how the enemy accuses God of the very thing he's guilty of, 
and that God is beyond reproach and not deserving of accusation, we should never do it. Shut of the day. Finally, thirdly, we see how we overcome discouragement through remembering the miracle of creation and understanding that new creation miracle in our lives happened by the preaching of the Word. Now hang with me for just a second. We're going to have to back our way into this and then we'll close. Romans chapter 10 talks about everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. I'm, I'm using short language to try to get at something there. And then it says that faith comes by hearing. In other words, nobody has faith unless they hear the word of the Lord. So the word has to be proclaimed. Right? It has to be preached. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, kind of pulling together some biblical data. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 19 says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, even more fully than the transfiguration moment is what the intimation is. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, Peter wrote, to which you will do well to pay attention. Pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. This is a verbose articulation of the miracle that you have in your hand when you read the Bible. That's what it's saying. You have the prophetic word confirmed. Pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place, knowing that no scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, not by the will of men, but men spoke in scripture from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, is what 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21 says. Now, take that knowledge back to our focal text today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This great miracle that we need to remember today so that we can overcome discouragement, so we don't accuse God, so that we don't change philosophies of ministry. This miracle, listen to verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. See, this is the danger, isn't it? It's that ministers would start proclaiming themselves because, well, the gospel just doesn't seem to be working. It doesn't seem to be working. Be faithful to God's word when it doesn't seem to be working. God's word always works on God's people as the Spirit intercepts them and steers them in faithfulness. Verse 4 says, or verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, His Lordship, His leadership. We, pro we project Christ on you. We tell you of Christ. With ourselves, the leaders say, as your servants for Jesus' sake. So we're taking on the position of servant. We're taking on the position of serving for the sake of Christ, for Christ's sake. And we don't proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. It's one of the reasons is I've matured, I hope I've matured as a preacher. I've tried to cut more and more stories about myself out of my sermons. Is I don't, I don't want to project on you me. I don't want madisms. I don't want a church built on the whether or not you think I'm witty or whether or not you think I'm, in, I'm interesting. Or I don't want a church built on that. I mean, it might build, it might not build, but it's not being built on the rock if it's that way. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying I'll never tell a story about myself. I'm just saying it's something I've learned along the way is how about less of Matt and how about more of Jesus? How about less of anecdotes about you know, philosophies of life that Matt's experienced? And how about more biblical Biblical illustrations, cross-references. How about, how about, as Dallas Willard says, instead of always being about the business of counting the disciples, why don't you weigh them? See if there's density there. I want you to be pursuant of the Word of God and being faithful to the clear teaching of the Word of God. That's what I want. And I want to leave the results to the God that told us how to be faithful as we pursue those results. Now, so... Him we proclaim, and Colossians says the same thing. Him we proclaim, we're servants of you, but for this sake, for the sake of the gospel. Now verse 6, and finally, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness. Where did God say, let light shine out of the darkness? Genesis 1, right? In the creation, we read it from the start of the service today. 
I mean, he says it's said other places. It's in the wisdom literature, in the prophetic literature. So I'm seeing allusion to Isaiah here. But I mean, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Light came out of darkness. Darkness. Speech, act. God spoke it. It happened. Who's the imposter here? It's the God with a little G, right? Who's keeping stuff from you here? It's the God with a little G, right? Who's no God at all? It's that ancient foe who sinned in eternity past. Who is it here that's always been and always been faithful? It is our God. The imposter is trying to trick you. Don't think God's trying to trick you or keep anything from you. It's God that's trying to reveal to you. He has self-revealed, and this word is evidence of that self-revelation. It's God who said, let light shine out of the darkness. And how does God say things now? Through His Word. That's how He says things. That's what Second Peter was getting at a while ago. And it says here, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, for God that did the miracle of creation, Genesis 1, of creating everything that you see and saying that it was very good, for God that created everything has now created light in your heart, has now shown in your heart, believer, When God made everything you see out of nothing, was that a miracle? The apostles saying how much you must also see that the fact that there is spiritual light in your heart is a creation-worthy miracle. The new creation is a miracle. Reflect on it. Remember it. Meditate on it. And develop your philosophy of ministry and your accusations based on it. The gospel is enough. His word is sufficient. It's clear. It bears his mark of authority, and it's absolutely necessary because faith comes by hearing. This is how we get to Christ. We share his gospel message, and Christ is the way for all of eternity. And it says here that light has shown in us a light of the knowledge of the glory of God, picking back up on chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We experience God's glory. God has made himself known to us. We have seen Christ risen through the witness of the apostles and the written words of Scripture. And one day, we're going to see that risen Christ come again for his people, aren't we? I want you to all be anticipating that day. If you came to this church today as a person unbelieving and not anticipating that day, I want this to be the day where you anticipate the return of Christ as a person of faith. I want you to repent of your sin, and I want you to trust Christ to pull you out of that sin and to transform you into further and further extensive glory as he's doing in you something you could never do for yourself. And I want you to know if the light is on in your heart and you see Jesus, I want you to know you didn't do that. I want you to know that's just as much a miracle. You didn't any more do that than you made creation happen. He made your faith out of nothing, and he made the world out of nothing. God is God, and we are not. And here's what I want you to know. Your response to him waking up your cold, dead heart is worship. What do you want from me now? How can I be faithful to you? It's not, I wonder if everybody else is going to do it too. It's, well, Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. This is, all, this is my reality. It's, it's what I must be. It's what I'm conforming to. It's because I know him, because he's done this for me. And I trust you this. In your loneliness, just like Elijah, I'll trust you this. There are knees that haven't bowed to Baal. There are other people out there that God's doing to work on. And the church is where we get to see that. It's where we get to be encouraged that we're not alone, but the miracle of new creation shining in our hearts is happening with others too. And that's the purpose of the church. It's, it's not to be ultra-relevant or just to be many evangelism seminars every Sunday. The purpose of the church is what I just said. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us. Help us to see your light always and forever and not to hide it under a bushel, not to, to cheapen it as we talk to others, about you, but to trust this old gospel as new and relevant for today. Help us through the discouragement disease. Help us to benefit from the encouragement that comes by the Spirit. And as we take communion, help us to realize that our great model for this is, in fact, Jesus Christ.
who in the midst of overwhelmingly discouraging circumstances sought faithfulness to you and your word as he fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament so that all of your promises would find their yes in him. May that be our mentality as we take this supper in Jesus' name. Amen. Our elders are going to come to serve the Lord's Supper now. And you may go ahead and serve the people here. And as they're serving you, follow thought of Scripture and of spiritual things as we're considering Christ's sacrifice for us. The Lordship of Christ on display as we consider His sacrifice on the cross as we prepare to take this together as representative of His bloodshed and His body broken for the atonement of our sins of my sins, of your sins.